happy Good Friday. It, it feels so weird saying that. I know that this is Good Friday. I know that this is a night where we reflect on the cross and the finished work of the cross, what Jesus did for us. But it does feel so bizarre calling this Good Friday. On one hand, it is incredibly good, right? It is finished. Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. On one hand, this is such a beautiful thing. We go, wow, God, thank you so much. This is a, a beautiful Friday, a good Friday. But on the other hand, there's a side of this that feels overwhelming. There's a side of this that we're reminded that Jesus had to die because of my sin. Like this was the only way you and I could ever be right with God is that God had to shed his own blood. It's the most bizarre thing. Like for the church, if you think about 2,000 years ago, if we could sit at the foot of the cross with the women, with John, and looking at Jesus, our bloodied, crucified Savior, I don't think we would call it Good Friday. We would look at that day, we would look at that, that midday, that, eve, that early evening when Jesus is hanging there, taken, being taken from the cross, and I think we'd think we lost. It's over. Everything Jesus did, everything he was, it's, it's done. Obviously, here we are today, 2,000 years, looking back and saying, no, no, but we know it's not. We know he rose again. We know the story did not end there. And it feels almost really incomplete for me to teach about Good Friday and not mention the resurrection because it feels so weird. It's so hard for us not to go like, we know how the story ends. We know that Jesus is risen. We know he's Lord. We know that he meets with his disciples for, a lot, for 40 days. We know that he ascends into heaven. Like, we know this. We know the story. But I do want to tonight sit in, in this Friday, like sit in this story. Because we, we, I think it makes the resurrection that much more meaningful. I think it makes us long for Sunday morning that much more when you realize that this had to happen. This was the only option. I mean, it's so bizarre when you think about it. If someone were to die for you in a way that they didn't need to, it'd be like, why'd you do that? If someone's like, I love you so much, I'm going to jump in that ocean and drown for you. You're like, no, no, please, why would you do that? They, no one does that. No one, they only give their life because it was the only option. It, it was the only option. I had to lay down my life so you could live. This was the only option. God had to die. He had to die. It was the only option. And it's so bizarre because we, we do call this Good Friday, but this is the day that God took on humanity, and this is the day that he ended up dying. And it's just so bizarre when we reflect and look at that. So I just want to slow down tonight. I want us to reflect. I want us to be able to kind of take in the last few hours of Jesus's life. I want us to be able to take in the moment. What did the disciples think in that moment? What was going through their head? You know, as we approach Sunday, we're, t we're calling, just so you know, uh, Easter Sunday, we're calling it an unexpected Easter. But on Friday, uh, we look at really an expected meal. There was this expected meal that the disciples were planning to have with Jesus. They were expecting that. It was the Passover meal. And they were expecting that. They weren't uh, expecting Resurrection Sunday. And so I want to look at this expected meal between Jesus and his disciples. And I want us to just slow down. Guys, because this is, I honestly do believe, where the power lies the cross is so bizarre. We know that the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1.18. This is foolishness to the world, but to us, this story, this message is the power of God. I believe the power lies. This is the, cent like the centrality of our Christian faith is the cross and an empty tomb. And so we want to look at the cross. We want to focus on the cross.
I love what John Piper said. He says, life is wasted if we do not grasp the glory of the cross, cherish it for the treasure that it is, and cleave to it as the highest price of every pleasure and the deepest comfort in every pain. What was once foolishness to us, a crucified God, must become our wisdom and our power and our only boast in this world. This is Good Friday. This must become our only boast in this world, the cross of Christ. Um, now, before we do that, because I feel like every kind of Good Friday, it's like when you look at the life of Jesus, the last few hours of Jesus' life, it's like, do we just focus on the cross? If you were with us last year, we focus just what happened on the cross, why the cross. I kind of want to back the story up for us. I, I want to look at just the last meal, the last supper. I want to look at the Passover meal that Jesus has with the disciples. I want to look at what happened there, what took place there, how Jesus introduced the new covenant that was prophesied about. And I want us to take that in. We're going to end our time tonight, obviously, by taking communion and joining in with Christians all around the world for the last couple thousand years who do the same thing, who just remember Jesus' death, his body that was broken, his blood that was shed. And I want to kind of take us back to that first time they did this. The, the Last Supper, their, their first, you could say, like Passover together in this way, a different way, the first time that new covenants introduced. And I want us to kind of go back. Um, just so you kind of know the story of Jesus when it comes to the cross, when it comes to the crucifixion, there are several different events kind of leading up to the cross and the cross itself and then his death. We'll just put it up here like in just like a chronological order of what happened to Jesus specifically, not including Judas, not including Peter and some of those details. But for, here's what we see. When evening comes, like at twilight, they would celebrate Passover. And then Jesus goes into obviously teaching a lot, and we'll get into that. But you see the Last Supper, they're walking toward Gethsemane with his disciples. There's some things discussed there. They're praying in Gethsemane. There's the betrayal, then the arrest of Jesus. Uh, Jesus experiences a number of trials and then the scourging. Then we see Barabbas is released instead of Jesus. And then we see the whole cross scene. Eventually, as we know, Jesus passes away. He dies. He was buried. And so when you look at kind of like the Good Friday story, it begins with the Last Supper. This is where it begins. It begins where at twilight into the evening, they'd have this Passover meal. This is the start of Good Friday. You guys know that the Jewish day begins at sunset. That's where the Jewish day began. This is the start of, you'd say, Good Friday. So I kind of want to just start at the start. Now, every single gospel mentions this. Every single gospel talks about the Last Supper. We'll put up the verses here, but it is in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. There's some differences uh, between Matthew and, and Luke and Mark and Luke. There's a lot of differences between John what I find fascinating is John chapter 13 through 17 is focusing on this Last Supper. I mean, we've heard John 14 where Jesus says, I'm the way, truth, and life. We've heard John 15 where Jesus says, abide in me. Or John 16 where he talks about the Holy Spirit. Or John 17, the prayer that we be one. All of that took place at the Last Supper. Like sometimes I think we forget John 14, 15, 16, 17 are the final words of Jesus to his disciples. I mean, John records so much of that. It is beautiful. So much teaching is there in that last meal. My last words to my people. But I want to look at Matthew's version of the Last Supper. So we're going to be in Matthew chapter 26. And we're just going to read it all the way through so we kind of get a, a picture of what was going on, what was happening, and what they discussed. Matthew 26. Let's start in verse 17. Matthew 26, verse 17. It says, Now on the first day of unleavened bread... The disciples came to Jesus saying, where will you have us prepare for you to eat the Passover? Jesus said, go into the city to a certain man and say to him, the teacher says, my time is at hand. 
I will keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. And the disciples did as Jesus had directed them, and they prepared the Passover. When it was evening, he reclined at the table with the twelve. And as they were eating, he said, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me. And they were very sorrowful and began to, to say to him, one after another, Is it I, Lord? He answered, He who has dipped his hand in the dish with me will betray me. The Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. Judas, who would betray him, answered, Is it I, Rabbi? He said to him, You have said so. Now as they were eating, Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, he broke it, and he gave it to the disciples, and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until the day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Verse 30, and when they had sung a hymn, they went to the Mount of Olives. I just want to focus on the beginning part of the last day of Jesus' life before the cross, the start of this day, the start of Good Friday. Obviously, here we are, it's after 6 p.m. It's just weird. My mind kind of works like this, but going back, it's Jesus would have already been crucified. Darkness hit the land at 12 o'clock, was there for three hours. He would have been taken down from the cross at three. By this time, he already would have, would have been in the tomb. And, you know, I know it's, it's so weird when we're talking about Good Friday. It's like, what part, what aspect? is just so much. I mean, it takes so much time, all the texts I showed you, just to read through Good Friday itself. But I want to look at this last meal that Jesus has with his friends, with his disciples, what he introduces, what he shares with them, his, his temperament, all of that. So why don't we just pray? And I, I promise, I think, I, I actually can't really promise, but I think this will be a shorter message. My hope is just to kind of do what they did, to participate in this uh, beautiful thing that Jesus left us. So let's just pray. Father, we just want to thank you. We want to thank you so much for the cross, for this evening. Just to step back, Lord, and just think about what you did for us, what you went through for us. God, just seeing your disciples even flee, just being betrayed, being on a, a mistrial, being beaten and scourged. Jesus, we just thank you for all those things, but we know is, is more than just that. We know that what you're doing for us for behind the scenes and for all of eternity was paying for our sins, that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins, that your blood had to be shed. And we just say thank you. It's so weird calling this Good Friday because it, it is so good and it's so painful. We just say thank you. We thank you, Lord. I just ask that this would not be something we get too familiar with. That, God, this would not be something we, we think we've heard before or we know it all. But, Jesus, would this be just new? Would this, would this good news be new news to us? Let it be brand new to us again tonight. We just thank you, Jesus, in your name. Amen. Amen. I think we all just love a good meal. There's nothing like a good meal. There's nothing like a good meal with your friends. There's nothing like a meal with people you love and people who love you. Like, that is my favorite thing. It's like, the reason why my wife and I will even travel is just to eat food in different places and parts of the world. Like, we just love good food. We love meals. We like being with people we love. We like having that. Like, we want it to be an enjoyable time. 
It's crazy how there can be a meal with someone you don't enjoy, and that can be a miserable meal. But when you're with people you love, and they love you, like this is the, the highlight of human existence, is really good food with the really good people. And there's just something about a good meal. I mean, from the very beginning, you see this is like the heart of God. I mean, this is the heart of Jesus. I mean, he was constantly eating meals with people. Zacchaeus, yeah. Pharisees, come on. He was constantly having meals. There's just something about a meal where life is experienced, where kind of the walls go down, where you can express some things. There's something really powerful about, about that, just in general. I don't know if you've ever just had a good meal, got a good conversation, you look back and you go, that was the best meal, best location. I mean, like, they're in Jerusalem, right? They're, they're celebrating a very infamous meal, like Passover meal, that many people celebrated that time. They went there for that reason. They went to Jerusalem for the Passover, and they're just enjoying each other's company. It would have been a beautiful moment. I mean, obviously, the disciples don't really know what's going on. Jesus ends up teaching a very long sermon to them at that table. I mean, he's teaching them in John chapter 13 through 17. I mean, there's a lot there that just took place at this table. And there's so much shared at a meal. You know, there's only three times in the Bible it says the Son of Man came to dot, dot, dot. Oh, you'd actually hear this. Three times in the Bible it says this. Uh, this. The Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. And I love this. The Son of Man came, it says here, eating and drinking. Like Jesus, I love this. The Son of Man came to give his life. Uh, the, the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. And he came eating and drinking. There's just something about that. I mean, when you look at the Bible, you could say where it all went wrong, it all went wrong at a shared meal. It all went wrong in the garden when they're sharing food together. That's where it went wrong. It's all made right as they're sharing a meal together with this new covenant. And we'll see that one day we will have this meal together called the marriage supper of the Lamb. You see this idea from the very beginning, it went wrong over a meal, shared food. It's made right here. And ultimately one day it'll be made really right when we get to have this meal with, the, with Jesus himself. And there's this idea of just meals. There's, there's value to it. There's beauty to it. You know, there's a family. My wife and I had the privilege to get to know, and we were invited over for dinner. And as a man who we loved dearly, he was diagnosed with cancer, terminal cancer. And I remember just sitting at this table with him, knowing he had maybe weeks, if not days, to live. And he's just sharing with his family everything that mattered to him about them. He's confessing sin. <laughs> He's sharing high points of his life, low points, life lessons. It's one of those profound times for me to sit back and just take in. He's like, can you speak into my family? I'm like, God, I don't even know what to say. You know, it's one of those things he goes, it's just something about a meal. And Jesus goes, I want to I celebrate this meal with you. I want to leave this meal with you, and you're going to leave it with the church forever. This will be the table we'll keep going back to. This will be the meal we'll keep sharing. We'll keep telling the story. You know, it's, it's one of those things where you think at a meal, you, you tell kind of family stories, you tell things that are meaningful to kind of keep shaping your family, shape your future. Hey, this is our past, this is what's happened. Hey, this is our future, this is what's going to happen. That's what Jesus is doing at this meal. But he's also not redefining it. He's showing them the true story behind the Passover, the true story behind the Feast of Unleavened Bread. It's everything Jesus is saying, let, let, me, let me tell you about what happened, let me tell you about what's going to happen and what will one day happen. And it's so beautiful what's introduced at this meal. And the reason why, again, I want to share this is I want us to be able to sit, sit down and our little cup, our little cracker, it's not a meal necessarily, but we're sharing the same thing. We're telling the same story. We're reflecting on the same truth. And I want us to just be able to, to do that together. Can we do that? So let's do that. Let's, let's kind of go back to verse 17. 
Um, I, I was tempted not to do this. I end up doing it at the very last second. Three points. All right, number one, the setting. <laughs> the setting. Where did this take place? I didn't have this like 10 minutes ago. I'm like, I got to add this. Number one, the setting. Verse 17, it says, Now on the first day of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus saying, Where will you have us prepare for you to eat the Passover? He said, go into the city to a certain man and say to him, the teacher says, my time is at hand. I will keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. And the disciples did as Jesus had directed them, and they prepared the, fa- the Passover. Okay, first thing of this setting, like what, what's happening? What's taking place? Not just the setting, like the, the house, but I want to look at the, the, the big picture, the setting. Meaning, this is Passover. I mean, this is the day you celebrate and remember a lot. Passover obviously was like the 4th of July. I don't even know how to put it. It was like the most significant day to the nation of Israel, to the people of Israel in their history. I mean, this was the most important meal of the year. This is a big day. This is a big deal. The Passover. The Passover obviously speaks of deliverance. The Passover, pointing back to the first Passover, remember the nation of Israel. They're in slavery to Pharaoh, to the people of Egypt. And basically, there's a series of plagues, like Moses goes on behalf of the nation of Israel and says, Pharaoh, let my people go, and okay, well, and then he does, and he does, you know, and then there's plagues come over and over again, and this is what I find very interesting. When you read that story and you kind of see the big picture, do you remember the ninth plague? The ninth plague is darkness on the land. The tenth plague is the death of the firstborn son. What we see on, on Passover, what we see happen this day is what? Darkness hits the land for three hours, then death of the firstborn son. We see that this great, greater Passover, Jesus is showing us. Everyone was thinking about deliverance. We want to be made free. Like, we want this again. If you think about Jesus coming into Jerusalem on that donkey, being hailed as the Messiah, everyone crying out, Hosanna. Like, think about this. If you're like the local Jewish news or like, I don't know, like the local Jewish ESPN, right? Like, all eyes are on Jesus. Like, here he is, right? Think about it. I mean, they're under not Egyptian oppression and slavery, but Roman oppression. Like, just like they had the desire so badly to get out then, they have it more so now. There's this idea of like, Jesus, deliver us. Do what Moses did. Like, think about the expectation of Jesus coming in Jerusalem. There's so much excitement. Like, he will finally overthrow Rome. He will finally get us out of this, this dark place where we're being oppressed by people who are inhabiting our land. And there's like this hope that here's this greater than Moses, and he dies. And it's not what they expected. We will see that he was the greater than Moses. We will see that he brought them deliverance, but not how they thought, not how they wanted. But there was such like this, the setting was like prime for Jesus. Like, yes, this is Passover. Do what Moses did. Again, remember Passover was either, either what? Either the firstborn son dies or a lamb dies. Either death of a child or death of a lamb. Jesus, who ends up being both. He ends up being the lamb and that son who died. He ends up being our substitute. He ends up being that, but they did not expect that. They didn't want to pass over. They had a Passover lamb. Like they had that. That was a part of their history. That's what they're celebrating. But Jesus comes on the scene and goes, no, you you need this again, but once and for all, never again. You need a Passover lamb that will pay for your sins once and for all. Well, this meal will forever be defined differently because you don't need the Passover lamb that you eat of on Passover. I'm that lamb. And he forever redefines the Passover and shows us the meaning behind all of those different ingredients in the Passover. Jesus is going, it's me. It speaks of me. The setting is beautiful. The setting is prime. The people are like excited. Jesus is here. 
But again, it's not how they, how they wanted. I still think the most bizarre thing, when you, if you read the story of Holy Week, this, right, if you read it with, kind of with me or went through it, Jesus comes in, they're celebrating, and the first thing he does, like, here he is. He doesn't go to Rome. He goes to their temple and overthrows everything at their temple. It's so confusing. Like, why are you destroying us? Like, you got the wrong people, Jesus. We're, we're like on your side. We have your blood. Again, it was so counter to everything they expected. Their hearts changed dramatically, I would say, from that moment. It's like, okay, he's not here to do what we thought he would do. He's not here to do what, how, what, how we, what we want him to do and how we want him to do it. He failed their expectations. But I want you to see the setting. I want you to see the time. And I, I want you to think about just this whole, this whole night. It's so bizarre, right? You can read this in Mark's uh, gospel and in Luke's gospel, but this like, house that's ready for them, the Passover, I just find that so fascinating. I love that. Here's what I love. Like, Jesus is basically like, hey, you're going to go, and you're going to find a guy carrying a pitcher, and uh, you're going to say, hey, the master needs of your house, and uh, we're going to eat at your house tonight. <laughs> this is the weirdest thing ever. I have no idea if God prophetically prepared this man. Like, okay, if someone comes to you, like, you're, you're, that's Jesus. You're going to give him your house. I have no idea how he was prepared for this, but I love this. By the way, you're like a, a pitcher of water. They find him. How does that even work? Men normally didn't carry pitchers. They probably carried some sort of like leather sort of material that carried water in. So maybe it stuck out in that way. Like, oh, he's carrying a pitcher, not like, like an animal skin leather sort of thing. So they notice him. They call him out, and he's like, yeah, yeah, the room's ready for you. Just find that so interesting. I think the detail behind that is just getting... Uh, when it comes to the death of Jesus, God is completely in control. This is not like, oh gosh, I'm surprised by this. This is not like, oh, this wasn't my plan. What we see just in, in those little details is this was God's plan. He's orchestrating everything behind the scenes. As hard as that, as that is for us to grasp, God's like, I got this under control. What I love too about this person, we don't know who that, that person is. Some people have claimed that that is Mark. Maybe it's Mark himself or Mark's home. I don't know. I don't care. I just, what I love about this is just it's a nameless servant. How many nameless servants are there who will never go seen, who will never have their name written down? There's plenty of nameless servants, and I just think that, that God honors them in significant and beautiful ways. And so the setting is prime. So Jesus comes on, and I want us to look now next. We'll just keep reading. Uh, we'll pick back up in verse 20. Uh, we'll see the suspect. <laughs> the suspect. I don't know how to put it, so here we go. Uh, when, it, when it was evening, verse 20, when it was evening, he reclined at the table with the twelve. And as they were eating, he said, Truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. And they were very sorrowful and began to say to him one after another, Is it I, Lord? He answered, He who has dipped his hand in the dish with me will betray me. The Son of Man goes as it is written of him. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. Judas, who would betray him, answered, Is it I, Rabbi? He said to him, You have said so. All right, the suspects. This is so fascinating. Jesus is like, hey, I got to stop what we're doing. Like, we're celebrating. It's a celebration. It's a feast. It's exciting. It's awesome. It's Passover with Jesus in this prepared room. And Jesus goes, hey, I know this is awesome. One of you is going to betray me. <laughs> like, what if that just sucks the life out of the room? And I love this. They're like, it's Judas. No, right? Like, think about that. When I read this, I'm so surprised. They're not like, I know it's Judas. Their, their response blows me away. Is it I, Lord? Uh, it's really kind of introduced in this way. Why does Jesus go, one of you will betray me? I, I think Jesus did that for a couple of different reasons. I think one of the reasons behind that is for all of the disciples to take a second and go, it, it could be me. It's to take a second and say, I need to look inwardly for just a moment. It blows me away that all of them thought and knew they had the potential to be the Judas. All of them thought, it could be me. Is it I? Isn't that crazy? I don't even know if I'm thinking, is it I, Lord? They all realized how they had the proclivity to sin, to betray. They're not pointing fingers right away. I feel like we would see that more. 
I actually do believe in a moment they will begin to point fingers because that kind of does happen and they start arguing about who's the greatest at that same meal. <laughs> like, I don't know how it turns into that. It starts off so humble that it's like, actually, I won't. I'm going to be the greatest in the kingdom. It just is so bizarre. They're, they're humans. You just see the humanity of the disciples. But it starts off, and I love this, they go, is it I? Lord, is it I? That is unbelievable humility. I think there's something incredibly profound when you realize sin lies at my heart. I think of like Cain, who killed his brother Abel, and what the Lord said to him, hey, Cain, watch out, sin lies at the door. Sin lies at the door. I think all of us need to be aware that Satan would love to sift us. He would love for us to be that one. I think there's a humility in them to just ask, is it I? I think we should take some time to go, Lord, is my heart prone to wander? Because I'd say, yes. Is my heart prone to say, Jesus, you have failed me? Think about the issue with Judas was, Jesus, you didn't do what I wanted you to do. Therefore, I'm going to sell you out. When Jesus says, one of you will betray me, it literally means to hand over in the Hebrew, or in the Greek, it means to hand one over. One of you will hand me over. One of you are basically going to make money off of me. He knew what was going on. Now, Jesus, I think, is so brilliant because Jesus could have said, hey, Judas, tonight you're going to betray me, but he doesn't do that either. I think, he says one of, I think he says one of you, again, one is that they would take a second, but I also think this was a great, incredible love of Jesus for Judas to just say, hey, one of you is going to betray me. I think Jesus in that moment was giving Judas an opportunity to say, yeah, it is me, Lord, I repent. I'm so sorry. I think this was an act of love of Jesus, to be honest. I think this is an act of mercy. That Jesus is so beautiful. What we need so often is someone to call us out, but also to be loving. It's very interesting to me how you just see Jesus being just and grace all the single time, every time. He's full of grace and truth, those scriptures say. There's just something about Jesus where he can call us out. He can be gracious as we do. He didn't say, he goes, Judas, he could have been like, Judas, you're going to betray me tonight. Everyone get Judas. Like, it could have been so different, right? It could have been so different, but you just see the love of Jesus go, hey, one of you is going to betray me. And I think it, it gave Judas a moment to go, hey, you know what? I need to stop what I'm doing right now. I love what D.A. Carson said about just kind of this truth. He says, this is Jesus's final act of courtesy and love toward Judas. Let me just extend love and grace one more time. Let me just show it one more time. According to John's gospel, it seems as if John was on Jesus' right hand. You know, the whole Michelangelo uh, or Leonardo DiCaprio, Leonardo DiCaprio, Leonardo da Vinci, sorry. Woo! <laughs> the whole Leonardo da Vinci kind of painting of, of the Last Supper, it's kind of bizarre, right? Like, that's kind of what I have in mind, if we have that picture. Like, we kind of think that way, like, oh, here they go. Um, I, it obviously probably wasn't that way. They're probably on the floor with, like, a really short-legged table. Uh, they're probably leaning. Obviously, John, we're told that was, like, leaning on Jesus' breast, like, on his chest, like they're boys, they're homies, they're close, but he's like, just this, that intimacy is there. G- John probably being on his right, Judas probably being on his left, or being on his left, and this idea of dipping the bread. It is, it is unbelievable when you read the story and you read the accounts as a whole, because it's so, no one expected it to be Judas again. No one's like, again, we know it's Judas. And he's like, <laughs> like no, there's not that imagery. But we think for now it's, good, so, it's so obvious. But in fact, I, I do want to point this out, because it's so, it's so interesting to me. In John chapter 13, verse 26, Here's what it says. Listen to this. John 13, verse 26. Jesus answered, he says, It is he to whom I'll give this morsel of bread. And when I have dipped it, when I have dipped it. So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him, into Judas. Jesus said to him, what you are going to do, do quickly. Now, (laughs) this is so funny. No one at the table knew why he said to him, uh, said this to him. So some thought uh, that because Judas had the money bag, Jesus was telling him, buy what you need for the feast, or that he should give something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out, and it was night. 
Jesus is like, hey, whoever dips with me, that's, that's the person. It's Judas. They're like, I don't know who it is. They're still in this confusion. Because no, here's why. Honestly, the idea of him holding the money bag was such high integrity. It's like it couldn't be him, not Judas. The one on his left? No. I mean, that's what they're arguing about. Who's on his right and left? Well, it can't be Judas. There's no way. It's just crazy. You think about the moments that's just surrounding this, this whole idea. And then what Judas does is so interesting. Judas, we just read it in Matthew, goes, is it I, Rabbi? It is really interesting how in the Gospels you don't see Judas called Jesus Lord. You see him called Rabbi or Master. We actually don't see Judas call him Lord. In John chapter 6, Jesus said, I've chosen, I've chosen you, and one of you is the devil. I don't know. I don't understand this. I don't. I don't fully grasp this. Judas seemed to be, obviously, filled from power on high, did great works, did many wonders. Matthew 7, right? Do we not cast out demons in your names and do great works in your name? And Jesus said, there'll be some that day who do those things. I'll say to them, depart from me. I never knew you. Judas seemed to be one of those guys, did great works, used by God, but he's just rabbi. Jesus wasn't Lord. Like Peter goes, my Lord. Thomas, my Lord, my God. Judas goes, is it I, rabbi? Basically giving Jesus a stiff arm. You can be teacher, but you, you can't be Lord. That's who you are to me. Maybe you're a master in that kind of relationship, but not to the point where it's like, Lord, the one I worship, the one I serve willingly. Obviously, there's different intentions there. And you just see this being revealed you see the disciples kind of having this conversation amongst them. We're going to see that Satan, obviously, he fills Judas. Judas leaves, and that's actually when you read uh, John 14 through 17, some of the most profound scriptures, I think, in all of the Bible. Jesus being the way, truth, and life, abiding in Jesus, the Holy Spirit, this prayer for just that Jesus has for the church being one, all that takes place with Judas out of the room. And he missed out on some of the most beautiful messages, some of the most, everything. But it's just crazy. You look at what happened in, those, in that moment. And so you have Jesus eating Passover. There's Judas. It's called out that he's him. And now here we just see this, this meal is being redefined with Judas out of the room. And I want us to read this supper. Number three is the supper. And I just want us to look at this differently. Um, again, Matthew 26, verse 26. It says, as they were eating, Jesus took bread and after blessing it and broke it and gave to his disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup. And when he had given thanks, he gave it to them saying, drink of it, all of you. For this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Now, this has been called the Last Supper, the Lord's Supper, communion, the Eucharist, Seder, meal, Passover. This is, this is that. This is that meal. And if you know like kind of Jewish history or the Seder, there's different things they'd have, different things they'd eat. Uh, to this day, we're kind of transformed. Maybe there's an egg or there's a bitter herbs. There's all these different things in the plate. But for them, in that moment, there's that unleavened bread, right? You have the unleavened bread, and Jesus goes, hey, remember, look, look, at this, look at this, the unleavened bread. At every Seder, you have a, like a, a prescriber. You have someone who'd stand up and say, here's what's going on. A prescriber, sorry. Someone goes, hey, here's what's happening. Here's what this meal is. Here's, here's what this is about. Now, that's Jesus' role. He's like, let me tell you about this. Let's talk about the suffering of our people. But here's what's really interesting. Just stay with me. Because the presider would get up and say, hey, this is the bread of the, our affliction. That's a phrase they'd use, the bread of our affliction. We remember this bread. It's unleavened because we had to take this bread in a hurry. We didn't have time to leaven it and, and rise it. We had to take it and eat it quickly. It's kind of that poor man's bread. We had to do it really quick. We had to run. We had to flee. We had to get out of Egypt. We had to do it really, it's the bread of our affliction. Don't forget how we are afflicted. What is Jesus doing? 
This is the bread of my affliction. He's saying, I am this bread. Eat of this bread. Yes, you were afflicted, but you know what Jesus is doing? He's going, I'm the one who's going to be afflicted for you. It's no longer our affliction. He goes, take, eat. He takes the bread, he breaks it, he passes it out. I want us to think about it in that way, Jesus, because let me tell you, it's no longer our affliction, it's my affliction for you. I'm going to be the one who's going to be afflicted for you. It's the bread of my suffering, my body. My body's broken for you. We remember the Jewish people's suffering, yes, but let me tell you tonight, it's going to be about my suffering. My body will be broken. He redefines the bread and says, look at this. You know, at, at a Seder meal, there'll be four different kind of cups of wine passed out throughout that time, and you take a sip of, of each, and Jesus is passing out one of the cups, not sure, but he passed out one of the cups, and he goes, hey, remember the, this, this wine? This just reminds us again, I want to show you that this is, speaks of my blood that will be shed for you. And Jesus is taking this meal and just saying, let me tell you what this is truly about. Let me show you what this is about. You know what's really interesting to me is when the first covenant was given from Moses, when the, the old covenant was given in, in Exodus 24, listen to this, Exodus 24, verse 8. So interesting. They killed some animals and made some sacrifices. It says, Moses took the blood and he threw it on the people. <laughs> and he said, behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. That sounds so bizarre to us. We got to understand to the rest of the world, we drink the blood this time, right? Like it sounds so bizarre. In the, in the old covenant, they take the blood through it. He goes, this is the start of this old covenant. This, new, this for them is a new covenant, right? This covenant between God and mankind with Moses. This actually took place between the people of Israel and Moses, and they took the sacrifices in Exodus 24, and they threw the blood on the people, and they're like, hey, you're being introduced to a new covenant. The idea is whenever there's a new covenant introduced, there's blood that's shed. And Jesus goes, I want to show you about this wine that, you're, that I'm going to pass around. This is now my blood that will be shed. And again, it takes place during a meal. I just find this fascinating because when the first covenant was given, there was a meal. During the second covenant, there was a meal. In Exodus 24, verse 11, Moses took 70 elders and went up to the mountain. Here's what it says. And those elders, Moses, they beheld God and ate and drank. Right after this blood is thrown out, they ate and drank. There's, like, again, this idea of a meal happening when a covenant is given. And Jesus is going, let me show you, there's a meal happening and a covenant's about to be given. So Jesus is introducing what he says is this new covenant, right? Now I know we, maybe we know this, maybe we don't, but this is not like a new covenant where Christians come on the scene and we're like very cultish, like we're going to create a new religion. No, actually the Old Testament promises there would be a new covenant. And Jesus goes, remember Jeremiah? He prophesied about a new covenant. This is that moment. This meal right now, this blood right now, my blood that will be shed. All of this is introducing a new covenant. Jeremiah 31, 31, uh, it says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant. And then he describes this new covenant. My point is, this new covenant is not like something we just made up. It's not like Christians stole from Judaism. Their book, their Bible says, one day there will be a new covenant. And Jesus goes, hey, this is the new covenant right now. Here's the new covenant. And I just find this so fascinating. Jesus is doing something so brilliant so beautiful that I think maybe the disciples didn't get it in that moment. And maybe looking back, they go, oh my gosh, did you see what he did? There are certain words used in this that paint a picture for us. If you look at the scriptures as a whole, that God is trying to show us something incredibly profound. In the garden, when Adam and Eve ate of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, what did Eve do? It says this in Genesis 3.6. Genesis 3.6, it says, so when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that tree was to be desired to make one wise. It says she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. She took 
ate and gave. What does Jesus tell the disciples to do? He goes, take this. Matthew chapter 26, uh, verse 26. As they were eating, Jesus took the bread, blessed and broke it, gave it to the disciples, and said, take, eat. Here's the three words. Take, gave, eat. Jesus takes the bread. He's like, you take it. You have to choose this. You have to take it. Just like Adam had to take it that day. He goes, you have to take this. Now, he gave it to them. Eve participated, saying, I, I, I want you to do this with me. We're going we're to fall together. We're going to go through this together. Jesus goes, I want you to eat of this. I'm going to give this to you. We're going to go through this together and eat. And these three verbs that were used to describe the fall of man are these three verbs that are used to redeem man. And I just think the Bible is so brilliant that way. The Bible is saying, do you not see what Jesus is doing? He's undoing everything man and woman did in the garden. They took it, they gave it, they ate it. Jesus is undoing that. I'm going to take it. I'm going to ask you to take it. I'm going to give it to you, and we're going to eat it. And Jesus has taken us back to that garden scene where we rebelled against God and said our way. We're going to take, we're going to give this away, we're going to eat it. And Jesus is like, let me undo that. I love this about Jesus. I love this about the scriptures. I don't think the disciples were clever enough to be like, remember Genesis 3, 6? Let's go back and like write it that same way. I think the Holy Spirit is beautiful and profound and say, let me show you, let me just, let me illuminate the author's hands in such a way where they'll look back and go, wow, this points to what we did in the garden God is undoing here. This meal that they shared that brought the fall, this meal brings this new covenant. God is so good that way. Hey, the bread of our affliction, the bread of my affliction. Hey, the blood that was shed for this new covenant on the people, it's actually gonna go in you. You're gonna drink of it. It's this idea of I'm offering you a new covenant. All the similarities of the first, but it's, it's made new. It's this new covenant that we have with God. That I'll write my law on your hearts. Jesus in John 13 would go on and say, not just a new covenant, but a new commandment I give to you to love one another. But the point is that he's redefining this covenant. Hey, it's just summarizing the word love. And I give it to you. And I'm just showing you, this is what Jesus is introducing at this meal. I think all the disciples and their disciples underneath them all look back at the Passover meal as a profound moment because they all write about it, they all talk about it, they all must dialogue about it. And my thing for us is we get to share in this same meal. It's unbelievable that I know there's different views when it comes to communion or the Eucharist or this, this idea for us, the Lord's Supper. There's different views and ideas of it. But regardless, the church is still taking this meal. Regardless of your denomination, we're taking this 2,000 years later together saying, we remember you, Jesus. Your body that was broken, your blood that was shed. We get to participate in what Jesus left the disciples. It is so incredibly beautiful. You see, the only way to respond to that is Jesus saying, hey, do you get it, guys? I'm about to give my body. I'm about to shed my blood. They still didn't really get what was going on. They still argue about who's the greatest. They still miss the point. And the scary thing is you and I can be around Jesus and still miss the point all the time. You and I can be followers of Jesus. We can be around church people. We can be just like the disciples and still miss Jesus and miss the cross and miss his sacrifice and what he did for us and why he did it. And even me, I can go around. I can take communion. I can go through it week after week or month after month and take this and still forget the significance behind it. He had to die. There was no other option. Leviticus 17:11. without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Blood had to be shed. This is so significant. But far be it from you, Lord. Peter's like, not you. So much so he had to pull his sword to cut off Malchus's servant's ear. Like he had to do whatever he had to do to stop this. But it's like, no, blood had to be shed. Jesus' blood had to be shed so that you and I could be reconciled to God. And it's, it's so much more than that. It's not just we're forgiven. We're part of this new family. We're part of this meal that Jesus says, come, take, eat. 
hey, I stay at the door and knock. If you'll open up this door, I'll come in and dine with you. There's just this desire of Jesus to share this meal with us. It's so fascinating to me. It's so fascinating that in Revelation, when the church is getting it wrong, Jesus goes, I want to come in. Let me in. If you let me in, I'm going to share a meal with you. There's just this fascination with the meal of God's like, I want intimacy. I want closeness. The same bread going in my body is the same bread going in your body. The same juice in my body, the same drink, the same wine in my body, the same wine in your body. The point of it being like, I want to share this experience together. I want us to be one as my Father in heaven are one. The idea, I think, why different people groups maybe throughout history have not eaten together. It's just the idea because we want to be divided. Jesus goes, no, no, you have to come together. Same food, same meal, same diet. You're going to take it together, and you're going to be one. And this is what introduces us to the church. This is what makes us really unique. A couple thousand years later, we do, the, we do a couple different things. We share a meal, and we baptize in the name of Jesus. These are these two institutions that Jesus left us that we still do to this day. We're going to share in this meal, and we're going to baptize in his name. And we want to say, share in this meal. If you don't know, this is so much more than a meal. It's an invitation to relationship with Jesus. It's saying, I want to come in. I want you to know me, and I want to know you. Come in. I want to come in. I want to say this. Experience this intimacy with Jesus, meaning don't just go through the motions when we take communion just a moment. Realize that you and I are part of a new covenant. That you and I are part of, as Hebrews would say, a better covenant. It's a better covenant that we now have God's word not written on tablets of stone or paper, but on our hearts. That God has given us the Holy Spirit who lives and dwells in us, a part of this new covenant. That God will never leave us, never forsake us, we're not alone. That the same power that rose Jesus from the grave lives in us. The same power that powered Samson or David or Rahab, all the same power that empowered these men and women of faith lives in us. Every single one of us by faith. My point is, we are invited into something so much greater. And the point is, like, do you believe this? I've heard about the cross so much, but I think there's been seasons, or maybe the specific season of my life, where like I knew it, but did I believe into it? Did this power change me? Did this power do something in me? Listen, there's an invitation to intimacy with Jesus, and you might know Jesus died, you might know communion, you might know the covenant, but like, do you have you experienced that? I say, experienced that this evening. God wants relationship with us. God wants to dine with us. It was lost over a meal. It was discovered in a meal. It will be rediscovered one day. We'll take that in the marriage feast of the lamb. We'll eat of it. I love this. This is something we look back and we look forward to. By the way, when we take communion, three things I want, that should almost take place every single time. It's nothing profound, but just listen. Uh, we look inward. First Corinthians 11 says this. When you take communion, when you partake of this, look inward. Don't eat this in a vain way. Don't take this for granted. Remember Jesus' body. So we look inward. We say, Lord, search me, know me. Is there sin in my life? I want to confess that now. I want to be made right with you right now. Then we also not look inward, but we look backward. We say, yes, and I remember that this speaks of Jesus. This is all about Jesus. Notice that when he broke bread, it says he gave thanks. He gave thanks. Communion is not just a sad time. It's something where you not go, oh, I'm communion, I think about my sin. No, you go, I get to give thanks that my sins have been paid for because his body was broken. My body, my life can be made complete. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you that my blood does not have to be shed because your blood was shed. This is the time for us to look inward, but we look backward. And then I love this, what Jesus shows us. We look forward. He says, I will not drink of this cup again until I'm basically with you in heaven. One day we'll participate. That's the marriage feast of the lamb. And Jesus will take a drink of the vine for the first time when we're all with him together. I find that so beautiful. He's like, I'm waiting. I'm waiting. I'm going to say no to this until that day. I'm going to say no to the fruit of the vine, and then one day in heaven at the marriage feast, I'm going to take up this again. We look forward to the meal that we will have together with Jesus. This is one of those things that Jesus introduces a meal right before he's about to be crucified. 
This was near and dear to the heart of Jesus. This is going to be Sunday's text, and I'll kind of spoil it. But with the disciples on the road to Emmaus, he does sit down with them. And as soon as he breaks bed, it says their eyes were opened, and Jesus disappears. It's unbelievable. We'll read it. Don't worry. We'll read it Sunday. But what I love about that is as soon as he broke bread, their eyes were opened. Sometimes it's during communion, your eyes are opened to who Jesus is. I don't fully get it. There's times where I'm sitting down, worshiping, and I go, oh God, I think I forgot who you were. I don't think it really registered in my life recently. Maybe I was seeking first my kingdom and not yours. And I think God just brings different things to our attention during communion. My thing is this. Listen, look, look inward. Look backward at the cross. Look forward to this meal we'll have one day with Jesus. We're going to take communion. We're going to do what the disciples did with Jesus. We're going to look at this little cracker. You can break it if you like, but it's already broken, basically. But you can say, Jesus, thank you for your body that was broken. This little juice, this little wine, thank you for your blood that was shed. Jesus, thank you that you paid it all, all to you, I owe. Let me just read this really quick. Isaac Walks, uh, the famous hymn writer, says, When I survey the wondrous cross on which the prince of glory died, my richest gain I count but loss and pour contempt on all my pride. Where every realm of nature mine, my gift was still be far too small. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. The only way to respond to the cross is saying it demands my all. Jesus gave it all, all to him I owe. Jesus paid it all. Jesus, you gave your life. You don't ask me to do something that you first didn't do. You gave it all for me. Now I get, I get to give it back to you. Thank you, Jesus. I want to say, let's just celebrate Jesus. Let's celebrate the cross. Let's celebrate this new covenant that was prophesied by Jeremiah saying one day there will be a new covenant. It will be a better covenant that the Holy Spirit, that God himself will live and dwell in you, that God will write his will on your heart. Obey that, follow that, be a part of that. You're not just taking communion by yourself. You're taking it with a lot of other people saying you're a part of something much bigger than you are. You're part of the body of Christ. You're part of the church. The gates of hell will not prevail against the church, Jesus said. This is such a beautiful thing we get to be a part of. I just want to celebrate Jesus, celebrate this meal that says, no, we are not divided, we are united. We're taking the same thing together, remembering Jesus. I'd say, take this, eat of it, remember Jesus, celebrate Jesus, believe in Jesus, surrender to Jesus. Jesus paid all, all to him we owe, amen? So here's what we're going to do. The worship team is going to come back up. We're going to be quiet. We're going to be still. We're going to worship. We're going to take communion. You don't have to take and eat it right away. Take a moment, just pray over it. Say, thank you, Jesus. They give thanks, give thanks. They praise him, they pray, you give praise. By the way, verse 30, you know what it says here? What does it say? Verse 30. When they had sung a hymn, they went to the Mount of Olives. The last thing they did to end this supper was they sung a hymn. Traditionally speaking, that means they sung, they sung one of the Hallel Psalms, which are Psalms 113 through 118. You can go back and read this. Still to this day, Passover. When you'd sing, you'd sing the Hallel Psalms. So they'd sing a hymn, and then they went to the Mount of Olives. They most likely on this Passover night sung the Hallel Psalms. They most likely went back and said, let us sing unto the Lord. So that's why, we, that's why when we do communion, we also sing we celebrate, we remember, we say, thank you, Jesus. You paid it all. Amen? Let me just pray, and then we'll take communion together. Father, we just want to say thank you. Thank you for your love. Thank you for your grace. Father, we don't want to move on quickly. We just want to slow down and just say thank you. Jesus, your blood was shed so that our sins could be forgiven. Though they were like scarlet red, you have made them whiter than snow, and we just say thank you. Thank you for this new covenant, God, that you invite us into. Thank you that it is a better covenant. 
Thank you, Jesus, for your body that was broken for me, that on the cross, on that day, God, when your hands and feet and side were pierced, it was broken so that, Jesus, we could be made whole, so that we could be part of your body, the body of Christ, the church. We just say thank you. Lord, we ask that this night would not just get away from us without us just remembering, reflecting, Jesus, even hoping. We look forward to the day when you will drink from this cup again with us. And we just say thank you, Jesus. So we just want to praise you now. We want to worship you now. We want to sing hymns to you now. We just want to say thank you, God. So Lord, we just praise you, Jesus, in your name. As you guys are ready, just take, eat, and drink. We'll worship. We'll take communion. But eat when you guys are ready.